Welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. The following article was written by Zachary Cope and published in our summer issue for 1966. Who was Sophia Sentiment? Was she Jane Austen? Is read here by Sarah Bennett. On the 28th of March, 1789, in the ninth number of The Loiterer, a weekly journal founded and edited by James Austen, the elder brother of Jane Austen appeared a long letter to which was appended the signature Sophia Sentiment, clearly an assumed name. The gist of the letter was a complaint that the editor had so far entirely neglected to provide any reading matter suitable for women, and a threat that unless this omission were remedied, the writer would cease her support of the journal. So far as I am aware, no one has ever hazarded a guess as to the identity of Sophia Sentiment, and it must be conceded that unless further evidence appears, it is unlikely that the writer of the letter will ever be identified with certainty. Nevertheless, the letter itself contains circumstantial evidence that it might possibly have been written by Jane Austen herself, then only thirteen years old. The letter ran as follows. Sir, I write this to inform you that you are very much out of my good graces, and that, if you do not mend your manners, I shall soon drop your acquaintance. You must know, sir, I am a great reader, and not to mention some hundred volumes of novels and plays have, in the last two summers, actually got through all the entertaining papers of our most celebrated periodical writers. From the Tatler and the Spectator, to the microcosm and the olopodrida. Indeed, I love a periodical work beyond anything, especially those in which one meets with a great many stories, and where the papers are not too long. I assure you my heart beat with joy when I first heard of your publication, which I immediately sent for, and have taken in ever since. I am sorry, however, to say it, but really, sir, I think it the stupidest work of the kind I ever saw. But not that some of the papers are well written. But then, your subjects are so badly chosen that they never interest one. Only conceive in eight papers not one sentimental story about love and honour and all that. Not one eastern tale full of bashers and hermits, pyramids and mosques. Nope. Not even an allegory or a dream have yet made their appearance in the loiterer. Why, my dear sir, what do you think we care about the way in which Oxford men spend their time and money? We who have enough to do to spend our own. For my part, I never but once was at Oxford in my life, and I am sure I never wish to go there again. They dragged me through so many dismal chapels, dusty libraries and greasy halls that it gave me the vapours for two days afterwards. As for your last paper, indeed, the story was good enough, but there was no love and no lady in it, at least no young lady. 
and I wonder how you could be guilty of such an omission, especially when it could have been so easily avoided. Instead of retiring to Yorkshire, he might have fled into France, and there, you know, you might have made him fall in love with a French paysan, who might have turned out to be some great person, or you might have let him set fire to a covent and carry off a nun whom he might afterwards have converted, or anything of that kind, just to have created a little bustle and made the story more interesting. In short, you have never yet dedicated any one number to the amusement of our sex, and have taken no more notice of us than if you thought, like the Turks, we had no souls. From all which I do conclude that you are neither more nor less some old fellow of a college who never saw anything of the world beyond the limits of the university, and never conversed with a female except your bedmaker and laundress. I therefore give you this advice, which you will follow as you value our favour or your own reputation. Let us hear no more of your Oxford journals, your homelies and cockney, but send them about their business and get a new set of correspondence from among the young of both sexes, but particularly ours. And let us see some nice affecting stories relating to the misfortunes of two lovers who died suddenly, just as they were going to church. Let the lover be killed in a duel, or lost at sea, or you may make him shoot himself, just as you please. And as for his mistress, she will, of course, go mad. Or if you will, you may kill the lady, and let the lover run mad. Only remember, whatever you do, that your hero and heroine must possess a great deal of feeling, and have very pretty names. If you think fit to comply with this my injunction, you may expect to hear from me again, and perhaps I may even give you a little assistance. But if not, may your work be condemned to the pastry-cook's shop, and may you always continue a bachelor and be plagued with a maiden sister to keep your house for you. Yours, as you behave, Sophia Sentiment. In commenting on this letter, in the same number of the loiterer as the letter appeared, the editor admitted that he had been at fault in not catering more for the ladies, but he promised that in future he would amend his ways, though not along the particular lines suggested by his correspondent. He said that in future, quote, in the papers more particularly devoted to their service, we shall carefully select such subjects as may captivate the imagination, without offending the judgment, and interest the feelings without misleading the heart. In spite of this promise, expressed in Johnsonian prose, future numbers of the loiterer included little to interest the ladies. In attempting to find out who wrote this interesting letter, we must first consider the possibility that it may have been written by a man. It would be a justifiable ruse for any man connected with the loiterer to adopt a feminine pseudonym in order to attract the attention and interest of women. We know from the words of the editor in the final number of the journal that it had but a small circulation. The only men who would have the slightest inducement to write such a letter would be James Austin, the editor, or his younger brother Henry, who wrote several essays in the series and probably helped his brother in other ways. The most convincing and sufficient argument against such an attribution 
is afforded by a study of the styles of writing adopted by James and Henry Austin. James had a serious style that never descended to the light bantering and in places conversational writing that makes the letter sparkling and vivacious. Henry had a lighter touch, but even his lightest manner was stilted in comparison with that of the letter. No one who has read the writings of the two brothers would ever conceive it possible that either of them could have written the joyous, uninhibited, imaginative and, in places, impertinent letter signed by Sophia Sentiment. Whether the brothers were aware that such a letter was to be written is another matter that is considered below. If, then, the letter was written by a lady, we must also admit that only a young, and probably very young, lady could have written it. That conclusion obtains confirmation from the complaint in the letter that in the story told in the previous number of the journal, there was no love and no lady in it, at least no young lady. Moreover, the almost impudent opening, the frank boast of having read so much lately, the ridiculous appeal for tragic tales and self-conceit that even offers assistance to the editor, all betoken a very young woman, probably in her teens. Although the letter contains some statements that are probably somewhat exaggerated in the way that young people are prone to exaggerate, yet there is no reason to doubt the general truth of the main assertions. Two particular statements must be considered. The first concerns the amount of reading that the writer had quite recently got through. Quote, some hundred volumes of novels and plays, and in addition are, quote, celebrated periodical writers from the Tatler and Spectator to the Microcosm and the Ola Podrida. Young readers of that time, 1789, seldom had the opportunity to read so much, and only an exceptional person could have made such a statement. We know that Fanny Burney, in her youth, read widely, but in 1789 she was 37 years of age, and dejected and miserable in her court post of second keeper of the robes, a post in which she was humiliated, and in no mood to write such a joyous, irresponsible letter. On the other hand, we know that Jane Austen had her father's library at her disposal. She was guided to the best literature by her father and eldest brother, that she was very fond of reading, and, on the authority of her brother Henry, that, quote, it is difficult to say at what age she was not intimately acquainted with the merits and defects of the best essays and novels in the English language. It may be considered strange that plays were included in Jane's early reading, but here again we have evidence that she knew many plays at an early age. For several years, at least from 1787 to 90, it was customary for plays to be acted by the young people of the Austin family assisted by their cousin Eliza, who had married a French count, but often came over to stay with the family at Steventon. In summer the barn was fitted up with a stage, and in winter plays were produced in the house. In December 1787 they acted Which is the Man and Bon Ton. In 1788 The Chances, and in 1789-90 The Sultan and High Life Below Stairs. There must have been other plays acted, and for each play acted there were probably many others read. 
and one can be sure that Jane would take every chance of reading every play that came her way. The second statement that has a special significance in relation to Jane Austen is that in which the writer of the letter says that she had only been to Oxford on one occasion and she had never wished to go there again. Quote, they dragged me through so many dismal chapels, dusty libraries and greasy halls that it gave me the vapours for two days afterwards. Now it is well known, at the age of six or seven, Jane Austen and her sister Cassandra went to Oxford for a time to stay under the tutelage of Mrs Corley, the sister of the master of Balliol. Mrs Corley very soon moved to Southampton and took her charges with her. But the visit to Oxford, by a child leaving home for the first time, would in any case be likely to cause unhappiness. And if Jane were the writer of this letter, this would account for the unhappy memories that Oxford called up. To return to the evidence furnished by the volumes of essays read, among the volumes mentioned by the writer of this letter, two have special significance. The Microcosm and Ola Podrida. Both of these have some bearing on the diagnostic problem of seeking for the author of this letter. The Microcosm was a weekly journal that ran to 40 numbers between 6th of November 1786 and 30th of July 1787, and was edited ostensibly by someone called Griffin, but in fact by George Canning, then a senior pupil at Eton College. Canning, a brilliant student, was assisted by several other clever comrades, such as Lord Henry Spencer. The essays were later published in one volume that would be well known in Oxford, because Canning went from Eton to matriculate at Christchurch, Oxford. Ola Padrida was a weekly journal founded and edited by Thomas Monroe, and issued from Saturday 17th of March 1787 to 12th of January 1788. At the time of his editorship, Monroe held a demiship at Magdalen College. Neither the Microcosm nor Ola Podrida were journals that were likely to be familiar to anyone who neither liked Oxford nor lived near the city. Yet both these journals would certainly be known to James Austen, who would be particularly interested in Ola Podrida, for the loiterer was also published in Oxford on each Saturday, and followed a few months after the cessation of Ola Podrida. In the latter part of 1788, and particularly during the Christmas vacation, James Austen and his younger brother Henry would be at home at Steventon preparing for the theatrical performances and also discussing and making final preparations for the impending publication of the first number of The Loiterer. They most probably would have by them bound volumes of the microcosm and Ola Podrida and their precocious sister Jane would eagerly read them. She may even have taken some part in the discussions. As B.C. Southam writes, Some of the issues may have been planned and written at Steventon. With our knowledge of life at the rectory, we can be almost certain that she would have heard or read her brother's contributions, perhaps even making suggestions at the time of writing. This she would have enjoyed, for in addition to providing a commentary on Oxford life, the loiterer is largely concerned with the literature of sensibility, warning against its excesses in serious Johnsonian prose, and mocking it 
through burlesque stories and letters. If Jane Austen were the writer of the latter, it might well have been the result of some criticism she uttered during a discussion at Steventon, and she may even then have recommended that special articles for women should be inserted from time to time. That there was some collusion between editor and correspondent appears likely for two reasons. First, the time interval between the appearance of Henry's article and the insertion of the critical letter was only seven days. Between Saturday, 21st of March, and Saturday, 28th of March, the journal had to be delivered to the correspondent's residence at some distance from Oxford. The essay by Henry had to be read and thought over. The long letter had to be composed and written and sent by post to Oxford, where it had to be read and approved by the editor. An editorial had to be written, commenting on the letter and saying what action would be taken. Finally, the printer would need to send a proof to the editor before the journal could go to press. For all this to be done within seven days at a time when communications were difficult seems very unlikely. If, however, Henry and Jane had taken counsel together beforehand, there would have been no difficulty. The second reason for thinking that there must have been some collusion between the correspondent and editor is the very mild response of the latter, to what may well be called an impertinent letter. Some editors might have ignored such an irresponsible communication that contains faults only excusable by the apparent youth of the writer. The patronising and condescending opening. I write this to inform you that you are very much out of my good graces and that if you do not mend your manners, I shall soon drop your acquaintance. But really, sir... I think it the stupidest work of the kind I ever saw. I do conclude that you are neither more nor less than some old fellow of a college who never conversed with a female except your bedmaker and laundress. I therefore give you this advice, which you will follow as you value our favour or your own reputation. If you think fit to comply with this, my injunction, you may expect to hear from me again, and perhaps I may even give you a little assistance. But, if not, may your work be condemned to the pastry-cook's shop, and may you always continue a bachelor, and be plagued with a maiden sister to keep house for you. Coming from a young and irrepressible sister, the letter would have been received as a joke, containing a serious suggestion, and that is how James Austen treated it. But if it actually came from a complete stranger, it would have deserved a more severe treatment. As it was, the editorial comment is too mild for such a scornful letter from anyone but a near relative or close friend. Some evidence as to the character of the person, hidden under the pseudonym Sophia Sentiment, may be gathered by considering her suggestions for the improvement of the tale told by Henry Austen in the previous number of The Loiterer. Henry had drawn a moral from a consideration of the career at the university of a supposedly clever student who had wasted his time in unprofitable ways to such an extent that he took a poor degree and was compelled to accept a curacy in Yorkshire with an income of only £35 a year. Sophia Sentiment quite correctly called it a dull tale, but the suggestions that she made for improving it were clearly meant as a burlesque of the morbid sentiment at that time prevalent. Now Jane Austen, either at that time or very soon after, was writing Love and Friendship, a withering satire of that kind of morbid sentiment written in the form of 15 letters. This sparkling piece was written in her 14th or 15th year, and its style, polished and expressive, shows that she already had the power of expressing herself in language equal to that of most writers of mature age. 
Now, one of the characters in that spirited satire is called Sophia, and here is Jane Austen's description of her. Sophia was rather above the middle size, most elegantly formed. A soft languor spread over her lovely features, but increased their beauty. It was the character aesthetic of her mind. She was all sensibility and feeling. We flew into each other's arms, and after having exchanged vows of mutual friendship for the rest of our lives, instantly unfolded to each other the most inward secrets of our hearts. So sentimental was Sophia that she died of fainting fits, uttering the warning, Beware of fainting fits, though at the time they may be refreshing and agreeable, yet believe me they will in the end, if too often repeated, and at improper seasons, prove destructive to your constitution. My fate will tell you this. If the author of the pseudonymous letter had wished for a very appropriate name, she could not have chosen one more suitable than the young woman Jane Austen had in her mind at that time. To sum up, the letter signed by Sophia Sentiment reads like the composition of an irresponsible, precocious and rather saucy girl who had been reading widely and taking the opportunity afforded by the writing of a request for more reading ratter for women to satirise the maudlin sentiment so common in the literature of that time. Several facts stated in the letter fit in well with what we know of the youth of Jane Austen who just about that time was writing a polished satire of morbid sentiment and feeling in a story called Love and Friendship. It is a strange coincidence, unless the same author wrote both, that the chief victim of sentiment in the tale is called Sophia. Jane Austen had been guided in her reading by her eldest brother, who was the editor of The Loiterer, and many opportunities probably occurred for her to hear about the plans for launching the journal. She may, even then, have urged the policy of inserting reading matter specifically for women. She was writing tales and playlets at that time, and the offer to help the editor contained in the letter may have been a genuine offer from the ambitious Jane. The view that Jane Austen was the writer of the letter, signed by Sophia Sentiment, is worthy of serious consideration. That was Sarah Bennett reading Who Was Sophia Sentiment? Was she Jane Austen? We have in our archive a considerable number of articles on Jane Austen which are available to our subscribers at www.thebookcollector.co.uk via our digital archive.